0: Are here at 11FS headquarters in London, we work for episode 8 of Blockchain Insider. Today we're breaking down Bitcoin Cash hits $1,000, then quickly returns to 600 IOTA, the Internet of Things blockchain, announces Flash Channels. Aww. And we have some top-class interviews, including Stephen Pally about, are ICOs legal? Then Ranveer Sagu and Joseph Golden about their Ethereum-based insurance project. Now, on with the news. Okay, news time. We've got the regular, regular voice of Colin Platt. Colin, how are you, sir? Super excited to talk about Bcash. Yeah, I'm sure you are. And we have joining us for the first time, Steve Webb from PwC. Steve, how are you? I'm very good, thank you, and thank you for having me here. Your presence was long overdue. I, f- I feel good that you're you're on the show at last. Uh, so, Colin, we've, we've got to talk about this drama. Previously on Blockchain Insider, we had the Bitcoin Cash drama. We had Bitcoin splitting in two and then was it going to succeed? Was it going to disappear? Was it all going to go wrong? Was there going to be a nuclear bomb? No, it seems that it survived, but then Bitcoin seems to have kind of marched on and kept its price and stayed around where it was. Then it even hit record highs. Bitcoin cash kind of disappeared, but then Bitcoin cash starts to spike up to near near a thousand dollars like i I went to sleep one night and Bitcoin cash wasn't a thing. I woke up the next day and it's like Bitcoin cash exploded all right let's let's recap what is Bitcoin cash, and then like why has this happened okay so for
1: the last two-ish years,
0: um, Bitcoin's gone through a bit of a
1: existential crisis, what it wants to be when it grows up. One camp says, right, we want to be an electronic cash, we want to compete with Visa. The other side says, we'd rather compete with gold. Um, ultimately this, this came to head the first of August when the group that was favoring being cash said, We, for uh, technical reasons, need to have larger blocks. Um, Previously there and currently in the main Bitcoin network, they're limited to one megabyte every 10 minutes. They decided, let's up that to eight. So blockchains are made of blocks. No surprises there. And we want bigger ones. That's exactly what they said. So they created Bitcoin Cash. And for every one Bitcoin you had the day before, you now had one brand new shiny Bitcoin Cash to go with it. So your one Bitcoin became one Bitcoin plus one Bitcoin
0: Cash. Um, it's kind of like an, if you have watched Rick and Morty really? with multiple universes, like you can be in one place and then you go through a portal and you're in two at the same time. Like when you get that whole split screen thing, suddenly I'm in two universes and I've got two of the same thing, but they're valued differently in both the universe.
1: Exactly. So Bitcoin right before this was worth something like $2,800. Um, and all of a sudden, when you added these things both together, that became like $5,000, which is odd when you think that Basically, a community
0: split itself in two, and now it's worth more. So Rick and Morty a bit. <laughs> yeah, so I need to split myself in half, and I'll be worth more? Like, I don't think that works on humans quite so well. I don't know if it worked quite as well for you, Simon. Uh, yeah, it, but it has to. But I thought Bitcoin Cash was becoming the redheaded stepchild. I thought this thing was going to be like Bitcoin is is on a march, and Bitcoin Cash is just going to disappear. W- what happened?
1: Uh, the rise of the phoenix. Uh, this thing was pretty much dead, dead on arrival, or a lot of people thought. A while ago, Ethereum went through a similar, albeit slightly different, history where it also forked. And the old chain, Ethereum Classic as it's now called, pretty much disappeared off the face of the planet, only to rise again and now went from the the price of zero to the price of approximately $20 each now, which is about 10% on any given day of the main Ethereum coin. Um, This has seen something quite similar, and now Bitcoin Cash is worth about 15% of Bitcoin on any given day. And that oscillates between 5% and 20, 30%. Uh, we'll see if it's able to hold that over the long-term, like Ethereum Classic has been able to do. Um, there's some big stuff coming up this week uh, with- ooh, big stuff this week. Ooh, big stuff this week, <laughs> with the difficulty uh, retargets coming. So what happens- Difficulty every, retargets. Every 2016 blocks, or approximately every two weeks under normal circumstances, uh, the difficulty should adjust so that blocks stay uh, about every 10 minutes. Bitcoin Cash had an extra little change in this uh, and then had a sudden resurgence of mining uh, and hashing coming into it. So that normal two-week period originally ended up taking approximately three weeks. And then once it reset, it overcompensated and decided it was only going to take five days to do what should normally take two weeks. So
0: there's a visual metaphor, I always imagine something like um, the Egyptians making uh, stuff for their pyramids, right? They're making these blocks and they're, they're trying to decide what size their block should be. And they've got a certain amount of miners or workers creating blocks of this size and it's difficult to create a block of a certain size. And then suddenly they argue about what size blocks they should use. Two different architects go, no, if we've made bigger blocks, we'd build the thing faster. And the other guys go, yeah, but I don't want to build it faster. I want it to be higher quality. And I don't want it to stand for longer, so I want smaller blocks. And then they sort of this argument about the difficulty piece is like, well, what individual tools should I use? And the, the difficulty retargeting is that thing within Bitcoin where it looks at, okay, so how many people are doing the work? Therefore, how difficult should the work be? With this idea that that's going to change over time to so that the network reaches an equilibrium so that there's enough people working. It's almost like that's the amount that's the way in which you you make the task arbitrarily difficult. Difficult, and that changes over time.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's a bit like, um, yeah, if you're building a pyramid or if you're painting walls in a house, if it's two people doing it, it's going to take you five days to do it. If all of a sudden you go out and you bring your 20 closest friends, it's certainly not going to take you the same amount of time. Mm. In in Bitcoin, for a lot of reasons, we need to have it to at about 10 minutes because of these extra little features they put in it, it's not taking that
0: um, to very large uh, volatility. And that may eventually kill Bitcoin cash. So they're coming down too fast. So these, these people who were creating their blocks, those blocks were getting created too fast. So the difficulty was decreased. Um, but then, of course, then it swings too far the other way. And then we're, we're producing them too slow. And then the difficulty comes back. So we're kind of going through that volatile phase. Steve, do you have some thoughts on this?
2: I kind of come at this from a perspective of somebody who's thinking about how some of this stuff's going to go into the corporate world and change the clients that PwC deals with lives for the better. And actually, I would argue bringing about good societal change, even, even through working with corporates. I believe that's possible too. I kind of put myself in the perspective of if, just imagine Bitcoin. I was the CEO of Bitcoin Corporation and I'd created. Uh, what a 64 billion market cap corporation and my two favorite technology guys come and tell me we've got to, we've got to find a way to scale this we're so successful we need to scale it and we've got to be- get better but the bad news is we can't agree and not only can we not agree but we're going to have a massive fight about it we're gonna we're actually not speaking to each other some of us have even stopped speaking to each other and there are fistfights going on in the hall so we're not going to have one we're not going to have one technology anymore, we're going to have two technologies. And I kind of put myself in the view of a corporate looking at that whole outcome and the whole way that that's managed and saying this isn't a serious technology that we're going to be able to deploy. Now, I think it's kind of interesting into how it's going to play out because some of it's driven by economics, some of it's driven by speculation, I would argue, and some of it is just driven by sheer belief. There's kind of a belief in the one pure coin versus one way versus another. And I I think some of those dynamics are going to be interesting to see how they play out, but it also tends to mean that I think when you start looking back at a corporate world, this is some of the reasons of permission chains and um, the kind of consortia approach that we're seeing some of the, uh, some of the big corporates come to,
0: come to. It makes complete sense, Steve. I think that you can look at the volatility that there appears to be in this technology and say, actually, if I've got a millions of customers and I've got to have high performance um, corporate software that's running, then would I consider this? The, the flip side of that is throughout all of this, it's kept running. It still works there are different versions of it but they both work and they both seem to be quite effective and i also want to cast our minds back to the beginnings of the internet right so if you remember uh, the early days of the internet a lot of people said yeah you know it's nice if you want to send a few emails but what business are you really going to run on it what what you're not really going to put video down the internet in 1995 and certain ceos of certain companies that rhyme with Uster and Ock um, may have said such things and now you find of course netflix and hulu and and everything else, and bbc iplayer and god knows what else so maybe in 20 years time there's actually a giant opportunity for these sorts of technologies to be transformational to corporates but right now it's very very hard to, to recommend them
2: I'm not, I'm not sure about that i mean I, I think i think it's kind of horses for courses what use case are you trying to what use case are you trying to achieve if i want a trustless use case for sending some sort of value across the internet Bitcoin's a Bitcoin's a fantastic and elegant solution to that problem. That isn't a problem necessarily that or, or that that may be one problem that I want to solve, but there are plenty of other problems out there that I can solve with the technology that allows me to have a sharing of information where I have perfect sharing of information, where I don't have to send messages and get the messages wrong, and then reconcile myself against the different counterparts I deal with. And I can see real genuine big use cases, which I think are really valuable. I mean, if you did, the first job I ever did was I wrote software to settle a bond, right? There is so many unnecessary steps of sending messages to get a message back, to check whether your message is the same as mine. A third party does some checking for us. If you imagine coming out of university, understanding blockchain distributed ledger and saying i do what you'd be kind of like i do what why on what planet would i even try and do
0: that yeah why would i need to
2: and and i don't necessarily need an unpermissioned environment i could have a permissioned group of participants that could work in a way where they would be able to have i think a more understandable and predictable governance at least let's say that that could save us all a lot of money and when I say us all I genuinely mean us all because if we invest in pension funds if we invest in ISAs that is money that is being wasted on frictional costs that does no value whatsoever and that's where elements of this technology can come in for corporates sooner and then in time do I think that the permissioned versus unpermissioned question will will maybe merge and morph and actually you'll see maybe one approach and maybe a more hybridised approach. I think that's probably where we'll end up. But in the meantime, there's stuff we can do next year that's going to save money, that's going to take, that's going to improve service.
0: And I think, you know, let's not let perfect be the enemy of good. Absolutely. So if I was to set off from one side of the world and you were to set off from the other side of the world and we intended to meet in the middle, it would take us a few years to get there. Or if we're in a boat, it would take us some time to get there, if not years. And absolutely, there's plenty of uh, mileage in solving problems that are here today with the technology as it works today. And speaking of that, um, there is uh, a Bitcoin bond that has been debuted by a company called Fisco in Japan, which I came very close to pronouncing as Fiasco, but it's not a fiasco. It's a little bit special, isn't it? Colin, what do you think?
1: It, uh, it is special, and, and I, I want to hear... Steve, you, t- you told us that you used to build uh, bond settlement okay, software. So I'm, I'm going to bring you into this really quick. But uh, just as background, um, this Japanese conglomerate company decided that they wanted to trial things out. Um, f- some of our listeners may remember that uh, a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, rather, um, Japan decided that uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies would become a legal means of payment within the country. This company, Fisco, decided they wanted to trial things. So they issued a bond or their own debt. Internally, so between one part of the company and another, uh, for a nominal amount of 200 Bitcoin, or at the time about $850,000. So not a large amount, um, and it is really an experiment because it's just kind of an accounting thing to move between one part of your company and the other. Um, but it's it's interesting in that it hasn't been done before. Um, so I, I'd like to hear what what you think about this, Steve. If Does this matter? Is this just a curiosity?
2: Um, I think a bond on a blockchain is an extremely good use case because a bond is a relatively simple thing. It's effectively a loan that I make to a corporate that they're going to pay me back at a certain point in time and they're paying me interest for doing so or, or my pension fund is or so whatever. It's, no,
0: it's no similar from you or I going to a bank and, and looking for a loan, but it's just being paid to a corporate instead of being paid to a... Uh, yeah, and they issue a security, which is, which, is a, uh, which is
2: a bond. And by the way, the government issues them as well. And in fact, governments are... Um, probably some of the biggest issuance issuers uh, of bonds so you've faithfully got something which has a fixed life and it pays out a fixed amount of interest and it doesn't have any other particular corporate events that happen it matures there's a secondary market for it generally there there's what about 100 trillion bonds in issuance in total and around 700 billion of bonds that settle every day so we're talking about an absolutely enormous market it dwarfs the equity market
0: well and that 700 billion settling every single day dwarfs the entire cryptocurrency market at 125 billion absolutely yeah um, but then this one specifically these guys have done something uh, i guess a little bit different with with that bond they've they've actually issued it directly on bitcoin is that undenominated um, in bitcoin
1: is that fair denominated in bitcoin as far as i understand so yeah. I I believe it still uses uh, more traditional technology to actually function uh, and settle. So something that's not uh, too weird. And there's a lot of companies in Japan. Obviously, they use the yen as their their national currency. And I would imagine a majority of their revenues are in yen. It could be that they want to borrow money in dollars or euros. So that's not foreign for these markets. What's really interesting is that all of the cash movements are purely in Bitcoin.
2: I mean, look, it's a... a it's certainly an interesting thing to do. I actually think the place that this will really kick off, I think the bond market is the bond market has tended to gravitate towards big issues, right? So you've got Amazon who issued I think seventeen sixteen billion US dollar uh, this week so that they can do this food um, takeover, and you have Microsoft in January who did their second issuance of six months and raised seventeen billion in bond um, issuance, and they were twice oversubscribed for that so that's kind of one end of the market bond issuance in the sme market has virtually died away there is no there's virtually small no small business lending there's yeah. virtually no there's virtually no medium down bond issuance and that for me is a massive gap because you've got um you've got low interest rates and therefore people looking to lend money cash rich particularly older people some of whom may be sitting in this room uh well one of whom is sitting in this room at least that would be prepared to lend on that basis and you know would lend don't necessarily want to lend to startups on an equity upside but might lend to more established companies that just want to issue you know a 50 million a 50 million pound bond for example and that for me is a real green field that blockchain as a technology could come into because you could do that relatively cheaply and
0: i'm really quite surprised that none of the crowdfunding platforms has looked at that well some micro bonds you do see in some of the there are some platforms out there that do that in the fintech space but they're small and they're not well known and there is something about this blockchain space especially now we're in token mania token madness has taken over that everybody's trying to use a token to do everything but actually that crowd uh, crowd-ish bond issuance type approach uh, and platforms for that. We saw it with um, sales finance and your know, market invoices and, and companies like that for, for you know, people who want to sell their invoices in, in the small business space. There are some platforms like that in, in the debt issuance space as well, but they're not very well known and there's not many of them. I think there was uh, there's a company, BrewDog, in London. They're an independent brewery. They actually issued a bond and had a lot of their customers buy that bond. And it's an interesting way to engage your customers customer base uh, if you 're a medium sized enterprise that 's starting to grow you want to grow national but you also want to incent um, some of your customers to become advocates it 's an interesting way of, of looking at that and that 's not dissimilar from what we 're seeing in the the token sales spaces there 's definitely you create advocacy when somebody owns some of the upside in your organization Ch- really.
2: Chilango did the same thing, and you know I, the burrito bond. I was I was standing in a queue outside the door at Chilango and I'm thinking this looks like a this looks like a reasonable secure loan if you know a bond to buy because I can't remember what they were paying now six percent or something for an 18-month bond or something it looks like a
0: good deal it doesn't look like these guys are going down any time and People when you consider the amount door. that savings accounts are paying in the US or savings accounts in Europe I mean savings accounts just from from a retail customer standpoint aren't there uh, savings accounts just as a way to pop money or you're just losing money against inflation in most markets so you would look at something like this if it was packaged to consumers in the right way if
2: you consider the cost and complexity of managing then the bond issuance is your share register or your 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 debt register i should say and who owns that and then just simply the payout that you're making It's it's a it would be a relatively trivial thing to put on a blockchain application and then if you did that you would also probably overcome the other major drawback I see, which is you can enable a secondary market because you could have secondary market trading because it would be very simple to show that you know, I've sold my, my bond to Colin.
0: Okay, so thank you very much, gents. The next story up is one on CryptoCoins News, where IOTA, the Internet of Things blockchain, has launched something called Flash Channels, which just either sounds like something to clean up you know, my kitchen or some kind of superhero, but actually it makes a lot of sense. So IOTA is a protocol designed for the Internet of Things, and they describe themselves a little bit as a blockchain without the blocks, which I think is... Um, An interesting idea, but effectively what they do is they say traditional blockchains run into scaling issues because users are transacting and the validation of said transactions are always siloed and often at odds with each other and then we have to come to consensus marrying the validation with a transaction their DAG based system um, allows for each transaction entering the network to validate previous transactions. So it comes along and says ah I'm a new transaction I'm going to validate these 5 or 10 as me entering this this network. Now the detail behind that we can bring the IOTA guys on to explain a little bit more but what this does is it effectively creates what they call the tangle. So there isn't one blockchain that we all agree on there's just a transaction entering amongst them into a a group of devices, a family of devices in this particular area. And as that transaction enters, it validates a few of the transactions around it. So what you do is you create these pockets of trust amongst the individual devices that they have validated a certain amount of transactions of their own and of their peers and of who's around them. And there's uh, some analytics behind how that gives you a certain degree of confidence. Now, that's a lot faster than a traditional blockchain, but also when you're dealing with devices that are maybe $10 and low-powered, maybe $5, maybe $1 devices, actually do you need all of the validation of the Bitcoin network and can you afford the validation of a Bitcoin network? And if we are going to have 50 billion connected devices, 100 billion connected devices, and these things are going to be running uh, agriculture or um, farming or aviation and all this kind of stuff, but these are very small sensors then we probably need a network that can that can manage that but then they, the IOTA guys said, well, it's great that we have this tangle, it's great that we can do these nano transactions, as, as we call them, but there's a certain cost to doing a transaction, especially when you're coming out of the banking world and into the blockchain world. So what they've, uh, what they've announced now is the Flash network for true nano payments basically says, well, why don't you just prepay the IOTA network for a whole bunch of transactions and then inside IOTA, we will validate a lot of transactions for you, and amongst ourselves inside our, our nano network. So it's not dissimilar to the Lightning Network or Raiden, where they create these these channels effectively in which the uh, transactions are netted off. So Colin and Steve and Hadi and I all have the, uh, we're all inside this channel, we transact amongst ourselves, and then when we talk to the rest of the network, we only report our net position. So we might have transacted a 100 times, but actually Colin's up five, Simon's down five, and everybody else is, is kind of the same, and that's all we report outwards. So this this makes eminent sense. I do think there's a need for a lot more people to be talking about Uh, netting as a concept as we talk about lightning network and raiden that's something that seems to be being introduced into the crypto space and internet of things i remember talking to carsten stocker who works for rwe famously known as npower the utilities company and he was he was very concerned that he's not really seeing the financial services industry moving into internet of things because actually if we have all of these devices and all of these devices need to be able to transact amongst each other paying 25 cents for a transaction that is actually micro sense just doesn't make any sense anymore so we need an ability to transact within that and iota is is one way of saying that but i'm i'm, I'm unless you guys have anything to add to this i'm, I'm going to try and move us on because we're going to try and get the iota guys on i'll the just show. throw in there i like the idea of barclays banking a refrigerator <laughs> beep. <laughs> beep, beep. Uh, well, they've got Siri payments now. I was talking to somebody about the Siri payments earlier and how would you have a conversation uh, about all of that? And we'll probably cover all of those fintech stories in Fintech Insider, which is our, our sister program. So do check that out on iTunes. But uh, we have joining us, late comer into the show, but uh, all because of our own organizational faults, Hadi, Hadi Kaplan from Autonomous. Hadi, how are you, sir? Hi, guys. Yeah, good. Very well. And you? Very well, sir. So unlike PwC, people may not have heard of Autonomous. Can you just tell us a little bit about who you are?
3: Yeah, so we, uh, we're, we're a two-year-old company. We essentially put private companies on blockchain and
0: on Ethereum, as well as on Hyperledger Fabric. By putting companies on a blockchain, you mean this the Articles of Association, so incorporating a company directly?
3: You can incorporate or you can upload your current company, and we will then map your articles and your uh, shells agreement. And any other relevant documentation into smart contracts Uh, and we will also have your shares being transferable
0: on a peer-to-peer basis and so this solves problems for people like
3: like founders who want to incentivize uh, their employees with uh, stock options and shares uh, that they want to easily uh, manage as a scheme owners of companies that have shareholders that are all over the world who need to be able to govern their companies very easily uh, through one dashboard where you know you have a KYC private key from which you can govern the company from anywhere in the world. So this solves a problem, uh, particularly famous amongst very small companies where I may
1: come on as an employee for your new startup and you promise me 20% of the company. Five years later, we get a bunch of funding and my 20% is worth a whole lot of money. You decide it's only 2%.
3: That's the thing. So, because obviously, it's so you can you have full visibility and transparency on what's going on, and as an employee, you have a wallet opening for you. And even if your shares are still options and they're unvested, they will come into your wallet, uh, and you'll see them uh, coming in before even they vest. So you have, and interestingly, actually, it's a it's a very nice HR retention tool. Because how many times do people hire someone and they say, oh, and we're going to give you this many options, you know, and then between the lawyers and the paperwork and this and that, it's like three months down the line and hasn't been done. And the person's thinking, did they mean it? You Absolutely. know, all of this stuff. So if, you know, with us and actually on the dashboard, it, it's with several clicks, you've created an option scheme so was uh, a, and you and great, you just
0: you go forward with it. There's a great blog post by a friend of the show Richard Burton who was an uh, an employee at stripe.com and he was saying that the problem with stock options as well is you get the options but you have to buy that option so you need a lot of cash to buy your option it's not like having money in a savings account like you need to pony up the cash to to then own those shares those shares may have grown in value but you still have to put a lot of cash in in the first place so a lot of people can't necessarily work with those and, and most employees don't really understand them so to have an online platform that helps you manage them um, as a smart contract makes complete sense. But uh, enough about Autonomous because I, I did want people to know who you are. Um, but Hadi, thank you for joining us. Autonomous.com uh, everybody. There you go. Can you uh, spell that one for uh, us? Oh, yes, O-T-O N-O-M-O-S. Yeah, that one confused me for a while. I was looking for all kinds of different companies that weren't Hadi's. It was, it was a real frustrate. P-W-C um, is
2: P-W-C,
0: by the way. Oh, yeah. I, I've heard of you guys. Like, did, what do you guys do? It's auditing, right? I think it's going to go quite well for you. <laughs> um all right so the next story up is um another hack in Blockchain token land. Colin, there's a hack the company here was called Enigma. So is what's gone on a complete Enigma, or is this hack making sense to you? This one makes a whole lot of sense. In short, the
1: blockchain's hacked, everything's over. Oh okay. <laughs> in reality, what what happened was um Enigma wanted to to raise an ICO, which is very popular. We've talked about that once or twice, um, or every single time we get on this show. And often in pre-sale uh, land of tokens, people are able to come in a little bit before the rest of the world and they get a better deal so um, some some interesting entrepreneurs decided that they wanted to create a phishing website a website that looked a whole lot like enigma's actual site and advertised for a pre-sale that did not actually exist and um they set up a an account and all of a sudden people got very excited about enigma because of the marketing around enigma and sent about half a million dollars at the time of ether into this account um from this uh huckster Um uh, the Enigma company found out about this and said, hold on, we're not associated with this. You don't get Enigma tokens for it uh, because that's not us at all. And this was not our deal. We don't operate
0: this way. So it's not really a hack. It's a scam. It's a scam. And there's been a lot of these scams. I remember during the um, Tezos ICO and Filecoin, there was a million people saying, wear this. And it's very hard to know that what you've been sent is actually really a Filecoin, a Tezi, um, or, or an Enigma coin in this particular case. So, do, are there ways to, to solve that? Are there good practices that, that people can be thinking about?
3: Well, I mean, I think in this particular case, you have to think about, well, who, I mean, who would, who would a consumer complain to? Right, so it's it's really not clear, and in, in, in this case, and that so that opens up a whole um, uh, door about how regulators have been thinking about these things as well. Um, and and so if if someone sells you something on the web, um, and then you you claim it was missold, you know, what does that mean? Who who is your uh, who is your fallback? Who who compensates you, and so on? It, there is no real answer because it's the way I look at it is if if you have a generation that's growing up digital first, right? Mobile, mobile first, and so on. There is an inherent attraction, obviously, to reading documentation that is interactive, short, digital, rather than an IPO red herring. Okay, but uh, on the other hand, you also need it to be within the framework of the law and the jurisdiction, and to have that person to come back to and complain if there's an ombudsman, if there is a regulator to say, okay, this was mishandled, and so on. And so we've we've just taken a view ourselves that, um, you know, if you want to put a, your company uh, on the autonomous platform as a company and you want to conduct a, an equity issuance, you have to be very clear that this is an equity issuance. Uh, it just so happens that, you know, we use blockchain to facilitate everything and have you govern your company and do your share transfers and make everything paper free. Uh, but we're very clear that if if you wanted to do something that you want to call anything other than equity, then we're not the platform for it.
0: So, Hadi, I think uh, what I think about in in this situation is how do I know who I'm dealing with, which is, you know, KYC, as we know it, know your customer, and to know who's signing something, who's sending something, and that I've got the real token. As as you say, there's no obvious uh, framework or governance and and there's a really interesting point to come in the near future where somebody's going to say I've been screwed over here Um, and that's why I think we've seen SEC guidance and a few other things. Colin, do you have thoughts here?
1: Well, I'm definitely going to call Steve. Apparently he's the the Bitcoin uh, Inc. CEO, but um, there's an important thing in here that uh, we, we we talked about audit kind of jokingly with PwC. Having these traditional structures to guarantee what I think I'm doing is what I'm actually doing is still really important. Do you think that blockchains uh, will ultimately help or hinder something like an audit business?
2: So, first, let me say I'm not an auditor, uh, I'm a management consultant and uh, and technologist, but um, that's and the CEO of c- Bitcoin. And the CEO of Bitcoin, uh, yeah, that's right, Satoshi. No, I mean, look hoping for the technology to somehow create a nirvana where bad things don't happen just is never going to happen right bad things are going to happen there are bad people out there and they do bad things and this was a fairly typical scam i mean this you know i'm not sure who i go and complain to if i don't understand that that's a phising site that i've gone on a phishing site that i've gone on so you know there's a certain amount of buyer beware in all of this as well and if you look at Other examples of where people have had coins stolen from exchanges, they tend to be typical scams that could be for your bank account or anything else where you're giving your password away by accident or your
0: phone's been hacked or whatever, the technology is not going to protect us from all of that, right? So I just wonder if, yeah, a lot of the scams we're seeing here is something that you could see in any financial services context. You could see it anywhere um, and the fact that people don't understand this space makes it even more risky. Um, But as Jason, uh, our colleague at at 11FS says, uh, there is a bit of live by the sword, die by the sword in in the crypto space. Listen, we are all out of time for today's news and I wanted to talk about an excellent blog post called um, not All Tokens Are Created Equal from Coindesk. I thought that was really, really good. And uh, a blog post that was on the blockchain infrastructure landscape of first principles framing. Uh, this is by uh, Trent McConaughey of BigChainDB. So if you go to BigChainDB.com and you just look at their blog uh, and look for a first principle framing of blockchain infrastructure, like it's a long read, but if you want to know what the future of Web3.0 does, um, I think that's one of the most well thought out uh long reads on what actually the blockchain space is becoming more about it's it's less about hey it's all about assets and trading and tokens and uh, movement of value and it's a lot more about what does the future of the internet look like and i think there's there's a lot of room for that uh, but i've got to send us to Adbreak. So we are going to Blockchain Live on the 20th September at the Brewery in London. I'll be chairing the main stage and it promises to be a fantastic event with an agenda packed full of amazing and insightful speakers. If you want to join us there, Blockchain Insider listeners can get a whopping 50% discount off the tickets using the following discount code, M11FS. Come join us in London and I'll see you soon. That's M11FS. Check us out. Great. So we are back with Colin G. Platt. Colin, how are you, sir? Still doing great. And we have the fortune of being joined by Stephen Pally. Stephen, how are you?
4: Doing just fine. I'm actually in rural Ohio as we speak.
0: So you're a legal professional um, who's been watching this space closely for a number of years. And we found ourselves in a whole bunch of Twitter debates and really enjoying kind of pulling apart where we are with blockchains and tokens and ICOs. And guppies. And and everything in between. Uh, So what are your thoughts on where are we and where have we been? Is this the revolution of the anarchists? Have we seen all this before? Like what's really going on here with blockchain and tokens and all this kind of stuff?
4: Right, so that's a good question. I actually, um, I did a conference a week ago in Las Vegas, the International Legal Technology Association, and my, te- my panel was um, titled, Where Does Blockchain Fit Into Legal? And whoever wrote the copy for it included a line that said, um, blockchain is the most important thing to happen to the legal profession since William the Conqueror introduced the common law. Obviously, I don't think that's necessarily true. So we're at a pretty high point in the hype cycle. And I think from a technological development standpoint, you know, we've seen all of this before. Every time a new technology has taken hold in human history, people have made much of it. And it's taken time for the law to get sorted. It's taken time for the wheat to get sorted from the chaff. You can see this with the invention of the printing press, the invention of the steam elevator automobiles, computers, calculators, it's all happened before. I think what's interesting is as a lawyer, what's interesting to me is not tokens. That to me is, um, for the most part, it's just boiler room, people finding easy money. I think that's boring. What's interesting to me, it's not that I don't like money either, don't get me wrong. What's interesting to me is the notion of a ledger that can be in multiple places at the same time and that can only be modified if there is agreement among the parties. As a lawyer, that is actually kind of revolutionary. That's what I think is interesting, and that's where I think once we figure out, you know, are tokens commodities, are they securities, does the SEC have jurisdiction, the CFTC, what do countries everywhere in the world think of these things? Once we sort out the investment component piece of it, get over that froth, what would be interesting to me is to see where the technology develops.
0: So, listen, Interesting idea that really we've seen a lot before in the legal profession. Um, but it's nice to have something that's not just the introduction of track changes and this idea that, you know, in, in legal, there was always this difficulty about agreeing the state of something because one people had one copy of something, somebody else had, and and getting to the evidence and what was underneath something, getting to the facts was always 90% of the job. And then actually then deciding what the law thinks about that and making a case was, was probably another piece. I'll start with the token piece. Let's let's address that because I do think there's definitely something to that that le- the, to that um, certainty of people agreeing on the statement state of facts, which I think is is hugely significant. But you've been outspoken about ICOs and their legal status, and, and you just mentioned there um, that you know boiler room and this kind of stuff. We saw the the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, came out a couple of weeks ago. With some comments on the space were they surprising comments for you and you know what, what do you think they really mean for these people that are buying tokens or issuing tokens or if you're um, kind of like an institution thinking actually this is maybe we should maybe we should be buying some of this what, what's your view?
4: Um, from the standpoint of what the SEC said, I, I was not surprised what I read. I read it as and I think if you get to the end, I think the SEC essentially says this. Look, I mean, you can build whatever you want, and it could be really cool. There's law. It exists. If something was a securities offering before somebody came up with the idea of ERC-20 tokens or blockchain or even before Bitcoin, if somebody sold something that was a security before, the same rules apply. I don't think that that is terribly shocking. You know, you could have sent 20 years ago, shoot, 40 years ago, you could have sent a telex to everybody you knew in the United States, telling people about some great idea that you had and asking them for money. Um, You know, 15, 20 years ago, maybe it would have been uh, first a fax and then an email. Um, Now you can essentially do the same thing and transfer value using code. Um, I don't think, you know, if it was illegal or unlawful or unwise using a fax, just because you can do it, in a more expeditious way now doesn't change the analysis. So the difference between a fax and a token is obviously if I send you ether or Bitcoin or some other token in exchange or some other store of value in exchange for your token, the transfer happens not instantaneously, but maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes. Um, If I sent a promise before in a fax or an email, it would take longer. The fact that you can transfer consideration faster doesn't change the analysis of whether or not something is a uh, securities is a security or not. That's kind of the way I look at it.
1: So, for our listeners who are like me and have just googled, a telex is like
0: a, a peer-to-peer fax machine, right?
4: Okay. I mean, I, in a way, sure.
0: <laughs> um, so the a lot of these tokens are launched with white papers and you yes. you did a white paper white paper so what was your white paper white paper white papering about
4: so I've seen people make some common mistakes so by way of background um, I'm a trial lawyer and a litigator um, that's my experience I've done more sort of front-end advisory work as I've gained more experience. But I spend – and I have spent a lot of time sitting in front of witnesses asking them questions. So when I see something like a white paper, I literally do – I began by saying, so you call them white paper, we call them evidence. I, I see documents and I see exhibit stickers on them. So what I was trying to do and uh, hopefully not too sharp of a fashion, just trying to give people some perspective. You know, Some of these ICOs will fail or some of them uh, people who put money into them will Call it cryptocurrency. I call it money. Some some people who invest in them will say they failed. There will be litigation. It will happen. You have 180 or so countries in the world, multiple states, provinces, legal jurisdictions. Some regulator is going to come after one of these things or more of them. I'm what the question that I was asking was: If that happens, what can you do to put yourself in the best possible position so that you're not the person they go after? And I offered some thoughts from the standpoint of the guy who might be asking you questions when he slaps the exhibit sticker on the white paper.
0: That's super interesting because there are a lot of people that have contacted, I guess, anybody, yourself, ourselves in this space, going, I want to raise a token sale, how do I do it? And what what good advice would you say is out there? How can you best protect yourself in this space if you are absolutely Uh, convinced that you're going to do a token sale?
4: So if you were going to do a securities offering before, You would hire a securities lawyer. I'm not – look, I don't get a commission for this from my fellow lawyers who do this. This is just one guy. But my view as a lawyer is you probably want to talk to a lawyer, get some legal feedback. I think it's also important to recognize – I said it a few minutes ago and I've I've said this for a long time. Lots of different countries in the world, they all have different laws. Don't think just because you've satisfied yourself that the SEC or the CFTC – Or I don't know who else thinks it's okay that it's going to be okay in Lithuania or Liberia or Liechtenstein. You don't know. So consider – the way I, I speak to clients about this is I respectfully suggest you have to consider the benefit that you think you're going to get by the scope that you are aiming for, with the risk that you're taking,
0: has anybody, to your mind, done this well? You look at names out there. So there was famously in the past few weeks that we've seen EOS and Tezos and Filecoin and um, and uh, Arga and gnosis way before that, and then the Dow and, and everybody in between. And some of these look more like they're issuing shares, securities. Some of them look like they're issuing like tokens to use the the, the software in future, so app tokens. Do you have a view on those two different ideas? And and do you have a view on who's doing it better versus worse? Or, or, or what do you look for? What does good look like to you?
4: Um, that's a really good question, actually. So I don't want to call particular companies out either for being exemplary or not exemplary. One of the reasons I, I don't want to do that is I'm afraid that if I say that somebody's a model, then people are just going to go and try and copy that model. And that's exactly the model that I would discourage. You know, people who do it badly, some mistakes that people make, I should caveat this by saying this is not legal advice. And if anybody's listening to this or watching this, I'm not your lawyer, unless I happen to be your lawyer, in which case you've sent me a signed engagement letter. Um, so, my general observation is you probably shouldn't call something a security or use language related to securities if you don't think it's a security. Using words like investor, I've never liked the term ICO, promising future speculative returns. Those are all things that make it sound like what you're selling is a security, at least in my understanding of US securities laws. The concept of a token where it's more like a ticket, and you're providing somebody access to something that already exists, it sounds less like a security to me. Tokens is a sort of the concept um, as understood by software developers, tokens have existed and have existed outside of blockchain since before blockchain was a thing. They exist now. Selling somebody a token does not mean you are engage in a securities offering i'll say one last thing there's um something in the u.s called the risk capital test i don't know if it exists in the rest of the world it should be distinguished from the howey test but if you are asking somebody for money to build something that doesn't exist yet and promising them they're going to get a cut of the revenue on the back end you should probably ask a securities lawyer if that's a security in the jurisdictions where you plan on selling your token
1: and can I jump in there? You just said the Howey test. For people that aren't familiar with it, what is the Howey test? How is it defined?
4: So the Howey test – oh, this is going to be a test. Um, the, the Howey test is um, a test to determine whether or not something is a um, security under uh, U.S. law. It's, it's a, The Howey case is a U.S. Supreme Court case uh, that's about 60 or 70 years old at this point in time. I don't have the definition sitting in front of me. Um, that the basic concept is um, an investment of money uh, in a common enterprise where there is a promise of financial return based solely on the efforts of others. Now, solely is a word that's been litigated um, quite a bit, and there's a plethora of U.S. case law on the topic. Um, Some people will tell you that at this point solely means largely. It doesn't actually necessarily mean solely. It's complicated. In the U.S., it's complicated by the fact that we've got nine federal circuit courts of appeal. We've got dozens of, state, of federal district courts. In addition to federal securities law, we also have 50 states and their territories, and the 50 states all have something called blue sky laws, which are state securities laws. They all have their own definitions. So it's dangerous, you know, when people ask me some, if something is security, is it not? I think it's it's dangerous to overgeneralize. And it's kind of, if you've ever gone into your doctor's office And done research in advance and said, Doc, you know, I've got my ear itches. I think I've got yellow fever, right? I imagine like my doctor, I go in and he rolls his eyes. Sometimes when – I'm not suggesting people shouldn't educate themselves, but there's more to securities law and more to tokens than the Howey test.
1: Absolutely. But I think one of the things that's interesting, I just want to drill in just a bit and and reminding everybody again that you're not their lawyer. One of the things that's quite interesting was, was what you were talking about was solely the work of others and future profits. Is a speculative uh, aspect of the token, i.e. nobody's actually done any work, but the value of the token's gone up, is, is that something that would classify it as
0: a uh, security by itself, or is that just people are speculating? I, mean, I think that was what you were talking about a moment ago with the risk, uh, capital risk, and, and that kind of piece, right? So. <laughs> Yeah, so I am I have this uh, token, it allows me to buy a ride on your fairground, but actually I expect that this, this token will increase in value, so there is capital risk there in theory, potentially, possibly, maybe, caveat. Yeah,
4: so let's say I buy baseball cards and I buy them with the expectation that they're going to go up in value. The fact that I expect that the, tip, the baseball card is going to go up in value, at, or that I might be able to sell it on a secondary market, does not sui in itself turn the baseball card into a security. I would say it's the same thing with the carnival ride. Something else to consider, of course, is whether or not these things are to be considered as commodities and um, whether or not those commodities are tied to a derivative of some kind. And if so – are they subject to um, the Commodities Exchange Act?
0: So, this is the interesting thing, I guess, about this world we find ourselves in, Stephen, is that we now have something where we don't know what the definition of it is because this new thing came along and there are these existing legal structures um, to define and regulatory structures to define what a thing is. And these digital tokens, these digital uh, assets, don't neatly fit into those categories. They kind of look a bit like one and a bit like the other. And we've seen various global regulators respond saying, it's a commodity it's a security it's a something it's a currency it's, and there's not one harmonized answer which is guess what makes it very difficult to be a regulator at this point in time but interesting times for sure um steven um we're up against it on time so i'm going to ask uh how can people find out more about what you do how can people um f- read your writing and so on how can how can people learn more
4: so i'm on the twitter at um at Pally Law. you can find me on linkedin um, my law firm is a firm called Anderson Kill, and it's P-A-L-L-E-Y um, is my last name. And I do you – know, most of my writing I think I posted on LinkedIn the last couple of years. I have done some on Medium as well. Like I would say you know, for people who are planning ICOs or are planning blockchain projects, uh, wherever you are in the world, uh, make sure you talk to a decent lawyer. That's not the only person you should talk to, but this is complicated stuff, and even you know, I might have a fairly nuanced understanding of the way this works in the United States. Um, I, I don't know the law in Poland, or you know, wherever uh, many of the people who are developing—I pick Poland, Poland randomly—but I don't know the law everywhere in the world. If you want to be safe, uh, make sure you get good advice from the competent professionals. I
1: think that's and I, and I'll fair. say, um, I definitely worth reading your, your blog because I think as a non-legal professional, it, it's very accessible for people who are trying to figure out more about what's going on and
0: understand the state of it without being a lawyer. Yeah, no, that's key. And, and it, there are a lot of law firms out there, as Stephen says, that are currently advising people doing ICOs and token sales, some very high quality law firms, some very large law firms, and um, uh, and a whole bunch of people uh, that you need that aren't lawyers as well, the accountants, financial services professionals, and so on and so on. Um, so I'm sure they're out there. But Stephen, thank you very much for being with us on Blockchain Insider this week. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. I'm
1: now here with Joseph Goulden and Ranveer Sagu, co-founders of Blocksure. Thanks for coming along, guys.
5: Thank you very much. Thank you. Good to be here.
1: So can you tell me a bit about what is Blocksure, what you're trying to accomplish? I understand you're doing insurance and you're doing blockchains. How do those worlds come together?
6: So when we've, we both investigated this for quite a while before we started Blocksure. And down to its base essence, um, insurance is a legal contract to provide financial security Supported by data and cash transfer. And that's what blockchain facilitates with smart contracts and the data transfer and cash transfer capabilities of DLT. We think it's perfect. So when we got together, we looked at it and we thought this works. But we spent a lot of time looking at the background of it. Me from a commercial perspective and Joe from a technology perspective.
1: In kind of its um, ultimate
6: state, what is Blockchain doing differently than more traditional methods? What we've done is we've actually said we need to take a lot of the back office processing away, and what we're trying to show people is that we can radically change how it's transacted and the operational requirements of insurance. At the moment, what happens is a broker and insurer when they deal with each other, and we're focused on the intermediate business, not direct businesses, because that is basically a peer-to-peer platform, because they can deal direct with each other. So what we've said is we can make intermediate business more efficient than direct business, because a customer buys a policy at the front end and all the data transfers all the way across and when they make a payment, that will go all the way through the supply chain and everybody will get paid. And that is buying policies, making claims, and we're just taking a lot of inefficiencies out. And in making it much, much more efficient, we've said that people don't need to buy annual policies anymore. We can change how insurance is transacted. So you may buy a base policy if you've got three cars and you cover driving on the road. But then you have an on-demand facility, which means... Whichever car of those three you drive, you put that on cover and you're covered. So, no longer is it one car, one policy, and your policies. We want to do away with that kind of stuff. Customers buy what they need from an insurance perspective. And when something happens, they get paid out quickly, not the current claims process. That's, that's the commercial side of it. Um, Joe, do you want to explain a bit more about the technology side that we've put in place? Um, so, at the moment,
5: we're utilizing a permissioned Ethereum chain. Actually, it's um, JP Morgan's Quorum. Um, that allows us to create sort of organic networks that allow the participants to scale as they require and share information with only the participants who are allowed and authorized to view those transactions.
1: So, for those that don't know, um, the, the JP Morgan Quorum was started from Ethereum and it is specifically using Ethereum without Ether, where we know who the participants are. It's this permission blockchain or private blockchain. Why did you decide to use Quorum versus maybe Corda or Hyperledger Fabric?
5: Because we had already started building on Ethereum, so we had smart contracts that utilized that technology. And when it was released, it satisfied that our uh, privacy requirements. It might be further down the line that um, Hyperledger or R3's Corda becomes more appropriate, but those are still in alpha as well. So.
1: And I think what you said is really interesting there about the fact that you'd started with public Ethereum and Solidity and the smart contracts that existed and were very easily able to swap over. Do you think that that will be a driving force of people maybe going the other direction in the future? And maybe you guys decide you want to go back to the public Ethereum network or any other public network. Would you find that potentially attractive for this business? Yeah, we had that in mind, and that was uh, the way we tried to design it, is we only put
5: information on the blockchain that absolutely needs to be there. And uh, I think the p- public blockchain has a big part to play, at least in identity and payments. So, um, yes, we, we see that combination of the two being very important.
6: And it's, I think for us, it's a, it's a journey we're going on in this. It's very early stages. We're in an insurance industry, which is very conservative. So we've got to take it step by step from where we are now to the future. So working on a permission chain where each broker can only see their own information, each insurer can only see their own information is really important. But in the future, the plan is to say, is that really how insurance will be worked? Maybe not with all the ICOs and people like Etherisk, et cetera, who are building platforms. We want to be the technology provider for them because that's what we do. So being on the open chain is important to us and being able to do that. So it's very important to be able to work in a, open way and not narrow ourselves down to a certain permission chain so that's hence why joe will be looking at corda will be looking at Hyperledger. to say how does it fit with our overall strategy and i uh, there's something
1: else that's really interesting your clients in there you're not going out to every tom dick and harry who wants to buy a car insurance policy or home insurance you're selling to the kind of bigger companies like the avivas and access of the world
6: and trying to help them improve their process so it's, it's both for us. So if there is somebody who wants to do, build a peer-to-peer um, cryptocurrency-based insurer, our platform is available to them. If it's a conventional insurer great they can use it as well other people have distribution we want other people to focus on building insurance businesses we want to build the technology we're really really focused on that and that's all we want to do because other people will be much much better positioned than us to do that kind of stuff if in the future we have an idea which means that we might sort of broach on that then we'll work with other people to do it we're not in the space of building insurance businesses we want to build a technology business that can move very quickly globally and support different players in different markets and we don't want to be let's say, stuck in the regulations, approval process, which can take a year, 18 months to grow a business. So uh,
1: you want to become a partner of these big companies? Yeah. In a way. Okay. And what is kind of their feedback on this? Are they receptive to the idea? Obviously, they're very conservative. Um, Are they receptive or are they kind of... um, less uh, open to adopting blockchains as a new platform.
6: So we've been very specific about the kind of people we're targeting. We, we, we call ourselves an enabler of diffused disruption, yeah? But we're an enabler. Mm. We help people to disrupt. We're working with new brokers, and we've got a number of brokers that we're already working with that want new products. Or we work with a couple of insurers where they have got business lines which are under stress or they might be losing. So by improving that, we can ensure that they retain those business lines or we're offering them growth opportunities because i've been in businesses and in insurance businesses where people have come to me with technology solutions and i said you know what i've got a business i can't really risk anything or i'm not going to spend money changing something when i don't really know if there's any benefits so we've got to prove to them that the benefits are there and in the longer term we say well we've saved you some business by making it more efficient and we're making the process much better and the intermediaries you deal with much more happier or We've given you a growth opportunity. Now, once they understand the benefits of the technology, and there are a number of processes they've got to change, so they're used to annual policies. All of a sudden, we say it's not an annual policy, or you don't need a board rope, or you don't need a first notification of loss in your claims. Their internal processes, and people start going, no, 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 we can't do without it. So we've got to take them step by step from where they are to where they need to be, and we're going on that journey we're working with challenger insurers, new innovative brokers to prove this can work. And also we've had, we put out a video in the US and we've had some inquiries from agents or life agents who sell group schemes saying, how does this work? We've explained to them and they said, when you're ready to open up in the USA, let us know because they see the benefits of it. And we've been surprised that the broking or the agency base is we're having more inquiries than we are from insurers.
1: That is fantastic, and I'm really glad to hear that in these businesses, because everybody comes to us and says – an insurer or a bank or somebody else is never going to adopt this because they're just too slow. But that's fantastic to hear that at least they're thinking the right direction. The other part that I really liked about that is it's not just an efficiency play. A lot of people have looked at blockchains as yes, they're slightly more efficient on doing X, Y, and Z. Um, but really this is, you can make more money potentially if you use these, um, which is a great way to get into these. And I, I think more people will eventually get that. Um, and it's fantastic to see you're doing that. Uh, talking about specifically in the money, i'm i'm a bit confused on this of if i want to go in and buy a car insurance policy using a block um platform
6: am i paying in dollars or pounds or ether or bitcoin or a, a mix at the moment you'll be paying we started in the uk so you're paying pounds and when we open in the us you'll pay in dollars but in the longer run we've already got in the pipeline for the back end of this year to start looking at um how can we set up the platform so that people can pay cryptocurrencies. And I'm gonna hand over to Joe here because he's the one that's been looking at it and he's got most of the ideas in that area.
5: Yeah. So um we see a big future for cryptocurrency and we want to enable our customers to accept those new types of payments. Um also it comes with a lot of advantages for the real time transfer of value. You can integrate it with the smart contracts or smart policies as we call them. And maybe in the future there'll be um, certain countries that have their own currencies, national currencies based on blockchains as well. So we're going to integrate all of those into what we're building.
1: And I've seen a lot of demand in in a lot of countries They have life insurance policies that are partially investment policies as well. And I know in continental Europe, that's a particularly large thing. Have you looked at that, particularly within the cryptocurrency space where we've seen the price of Bitcoin and Ether rise dramatically? And it may be that some people say, I want to put part of my investment and have a life insurance policy
6: inside of that. Is that something that you've included in what you're doing? No, it's not something we've included because then where you're getting into is you're actually selling life insurance and you need to have regulated entities, but also the investments you use need to be regulated. Mm -hmm. We're just a platform. We're building technology. Now, if we have a partner who said to us, can you help us with this? Then we'd work with them to try and build something like that. We do bring more than just blockchain technology to it. We, the business is set up, so there's myself and four others who are part of the business who have got over 25 years plus each in insurance, so we understand how insurance works. And then the other side of the business is Joe and people like himself, who are trained in the same way on the technology side, who understand the blockchain technology really, really well. And what we do is we say, right, we can design new products for insurers and we can show them how they work. And then Joe and the team take that away and build it. We work very closely to make sure that happens, but we're not an insurance provider. But I do see a future where what will happen or we're hoping will happen is at the moment, if you want to buy an insurance policy, there are some real regulations around it because people want to control it. But it's all geographic. You can only buy a policy in the UK or in Great Britain, and it has to be in the UK citizen. But if, let's say, certain types of policy, if you can get a better deal overseas, why not be able to buy that? And cryptocurrencies span that. So will we see the challenge to regulation? I think with the ICOs that are happening, people will start challenging regulation. And as long as they can prove the consumer is protected, why do you have to buy policy in pounds? Why can you not buy in Bitcoin or Ether? And as long as it's going to pay out and give you the value that you want, there's no risk. And what you protect yourself for actually happens, then great. And, and
1: you brought up the really interesting topic of ICOs. Are you guys looking at ICOs as a funding mechanism? Why, why not?
6: We, what we want to do is we're going through a fundraise at the moment, which is a conventional fundraise, because we want to get the business to a point where we can prove this works. Um, an ICO is planned, but we want to establish ourselves with credibility in the insurance world. And then we want to do an ICO, but we're going to do it th- more like a conventional IPO. So we have a business plan that we're developing. We want to put a proper business plan with full documentation, have the right parties involved, so proper lawyers, banking Mm -hmm. support, so that when people look at it, they go, this isn't just based on a white paper. This is based on a very, very good plan. This team knows what they want to do. And to support that, another challenge that Joe's got is he's got to put together a proper technology roadmap to deliver on that. It's not, here's a white paper. We think we're going to build something. We want to go to market with an actual technology platform on which to build the ICO and deliver that for the people who are going to invest in it and i want to come
1: back into that in just a second but while we're while we're on icos how would you envisage that these are working do these look a a bit if you eventually go the ICO route, is this something that looks like equity or is this something that goes down the usage token of if i want to buy a service ultimately that goes on your platform i need to pay in these tokens that you've created which uh, tends to not be purely equity or what do you imagine
5: um, i don 't think it would be equity in blockshore. Sure. I think I like the the usage token not necessarily you wouldn 't use that token to pay the premium or the claims, but you 'd have to have some of that token in order to create policy in the first place, and that token would then create network effects between the different participants, the insurers and the brokers, and the customer in the in the platform but there 's a lot of different models as you say.
1: And it'll be interesting to watch and kind of understand as uh, where people favor this. And I think the usage token uh, aspect is a very interesting route to go. It's still very uncertain from a regulatory point of view what it is, in fact. Um, but there are a lot of opportunities, if you get it right, that they can be massively successful and get a lot of buy-in and build a community. I mean, if you, if you got paid in Facebook token for every time you posted, you might be more active on Facebook than you otherwise would be.
6: Hmm. One of the interesting models that we've looked at is having a crypto mutual, as we call it. So why not just say to people, we know people with cryptocurrencies have certain items at the moment and you want to test it in a sort of let's say a small way so that people get very very comfortable with it and we talked about why not do gadget insurance in a cryptocurrency because everybody's got gadgets right they've got a laptop mobile phone etc probably a couple and you create a mutual and then you say right this is how the mutual is going to work if you don't claim then it's good for you if you do claim guess what you don't get a um, discount etc but the better it runs the better everybody does And just get people used to that concept. And so the mutual is the concept of having kind of a syndicate of people that co-insure
1: themselves. And that is just kind of inherently peer-to-peer. Is that how, like, the Lloyd's
6: market works today, or what does that look like? So the Lloyd's market isn't a mutual. Lloyd's market is as a profit market. So each of the insurers have a profit pool, and people pay their premiums. And then what are the profits the syndicates make? They do. That's just that Lloyd's is more like a centralized market. One of the problems that's happened with Lloyd's is that people used to deal direct, But then it became difficult and more complex and now they've put platforms in the middle like they've got a central um, processing unit but they've got a big platform called exchanging which charges got a lot of money how we see the future being is that you don't need the exchanging and you don't need the centralized processing because it's all batch processing Mm -hmm. so at the end of every month a broker will put on um, exchanging what they've processed and then the insurer will download it etc and they'll say yep fine it all agrees and there might be reconciliation issues in the future, you'll do it on an individual account base or individual transaction basis, and you'll pay. So all of a sudden, the need for the centralized clearing is gone. And that's exactly the same as Swift or anything else of that nature. Okay, uh, that is that is really fascinating. I, I want to come
1: back to the notion that you, you mentioned a minute ago about you know building and getting your technology roadmap. When do you see this going live? How do you get there? Are you looking to bring people into the company hiring? Um, and if so, what types of people are you trying to bring in? Um so technology roadmap we're looking to go live with our first product with one of our customers
5: end of this year, and then we've got some more lined up for early next year. Uh, we are hiring developers at the moment're trying to build out the development team uh, we're looking for java uh, JVM skill set basically, but we're open to anyone that's interested in learning new things and really loves technology in general but blockchain specifically.
1: Okay, and maybe people that are just starting, that have a development background, that are just starting to get into blockchain um, should come out and contact you. What other advice might you give to people, be it development backgrounds or non-developer backgrounds, if they want to get more involved in blockchain? What advice would you have for them? Well, read, do a lot of
5: research. There's a lot of good meetups in uh, whichever city you're in London. has a great blockchain community. If you go onto meetup.com, search for blockchain, probably come up with seven or eight different groups that you can go to any night of the week. Um, that's 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 been a good one for me um, there's some good books good videos
6: on youtube and i'd spent before i started Blockshore with which i spent three years working for um a big chinese conglomerate and i was there european md looking at investments and in, fintech was one of the things or insure was one of the areas i really, really looked at what happens is people come up with ideas or they'll have a paper idea or they may have a great solution or build a great solution i think for, the advice i would give anybody is find the right problem and then solve that and come up with a problem, then the solution, and then look to sort of develop that rather than just, have a great solution. If you have a great solution, but there's no problem to solve, it doesn't work, you've got to make sure that somebody will actually use this one day. Solving the right problem, I think, is a
1: fantastic uh, bit of advice for anybody out there looking at any type of a new business or even setting up a team within a more established company.
6: And at the end of the day, what are we doing? If we go into somebody and the success we've had is... The way I explained to Joe and Jay, Jay's our chief architect, is somebody's bonus is on the line with this. And we've got to protect that. And we're looking after people's salaries and their reputations in businesses. So when we walk in, we've got to make sure that person can go and talk to their peers and their bosses to say this is really, really useful. We can use this, and it is going to work. And that's how I approach everything.
1: Excellent. Thank you very much for that. How can people find out more about you? How
6: can people get in touch with you? Um, They can just go to our website, so blockshore.com. There are a number of explainer videos, um, and they can just contact us via that. So there's an inquiries at blockshore.com and we're always very receptive to that. We get back within 24 hours at the most. Um, we've been very, very busy with a fundraiser at the moment, but we are responding to customer inquiries and everything as much as we can. Excellent. Thank you very much, Renver and Joe. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Colin. And thank you very much to the BlockShare guys. And a big thanks to all of our guests today. If you want to know more about us, please check out 11fs.com. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast, please. Leave us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends and colleagues to listen too. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Thank you very much.